thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means so many different things. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. Translation is our subject this week. Getting it right is crucial to diplomacy, theology and literature, to name just three, but it's not easy. Now we have computers and AI to help us, of course, but do they? Here's Colin Johnson on The Naked Scientist Show, Artificial Intelligence in medicine. They're very good at translation, but they're very bad at converting language into something that we might think of as understanding, particularly visual understanding. Can a crocodile run a steeplechase? That's a piece of language. We immediately convert that into an image of a crocodile trying to jump over large hurdles, and we know that that's not possible. But for a current AI system, it doesn't have that capacity for visualisation. My guests this week are Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner. She is Executive Director of the Wolf Institute and Fellow of St. Edmund's College, Cambridge. Miriam is an expert in Yiddish translation, as well as the meaning of pre-modern Hebrew and Arabic. And Professor Duncan Large, Academic Director of the British Centre for Literary Translation at the University of East Anglia. Duncan has taught in Paris, Dublin and Oxford, and is a specialist in German studies. Plenty of translation needed in all of those areas, if you ask me. Duncan, I have to ask, how well do you think Google would translate Shakespeare? I suspect you're asking this question because I gave my inaugural lecture with the title, Could Google Translate Shakespeare? I've been doing some work in recent years on the question of how computers can help literary translators. As you said in your introduction, we're very used by now to computers helping us out when we need translation, but usually that's not uh, literary examples. Literary translators have felt 
until now, I would say that they can effectively resist uh, the rise of the machines. It's been the assumption that literary translation is just too complex uh, for machines to do well. I took Shakespeare as an example of a quite demanding literary text. It's uh, pretty much the most demanding kind of ask you could make of a computer these days to translate something that's that old, that is poetry. The short answer to the question is uh, no. Google can't really translate uh, Shakespeare. That's where you have to start nuancing it because, yes, of course, Google can translate Shakespeare. It can come up with something which is perhaps quite passable, depending on which bit of Shakespeare you choose. I think the thing about literary translation is that passable usually at least isn't enough. And with translation, it's so often a question of, well, is the translation good enough? And in practical circumstances, of course, when you've got a very tight deadline and you're commissioning a translation, then you have to have expectations accordingly. With literary translation as readers, we tend to be much more demanding simply. If I'd got Google to translate this play, would I you know, expect an audience to pay money to go and hear actors speaking those words? So Shakespeare, um, Shakespeare is almost too much of an ask, certainly of uh, computers at the moment. But that said, computers have made huge strides in recent years and the models of uh, machine translation have developed so that for some kinds of literature, um, machine translation can do a pretty good job these days. And, you know, that has knock-on effects for those of us in education, for example, when students might be using machine translation to do exercises which, until now, would have been standard exercises for modern languages teaching, for example. It sounds like the answer is yes, but... Miriam, tell us about the particular problems raised by translating Hebrew and Arabic into English, and and I suppose vice versa as well. There are two different problems that come with the two sets of languages. So I'll start with Arabic. Arabic is a highly symbolic language, uh, which means that words do not necessarily convey just one meaning, but they can say the whole set of meanings, like in Latin, fortuna. Fortuna means both bad luck and good luck. And that's something that, that Arabic has as well. You have this vast amount of meaning that can be contained in one word, so you, you get it all from the context. All these different words that could mean all sorts of things. Sometimes you really have to you have to really concentrate to understand what some ancient Arabic texts are saying. And with Hebrew, the problems are slightly different because in Hebrew, the punctuation is done in a different way. We punctuate when we write, but in Hebrew, the punctuation is expressed by the word end. So when people translate from Hebrew into into English, very often they just translated all the ends which led to the development of a biblical register, which you say, and God created this, and, and God did this. And it's quite funny because you have this biblical register then reapplied for other languages, even though the end isn't used as a punctuation device. So the biblical translation mistake basically filters into many other registers of languages. Perhaps once it's done that, though, it ceases to be a mistake. I think that's a really interesting question, kind of how translations take on lives of their own, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, for example, in Yiddish, I mean, Yiddish is one of those uh, examples where people in the synagogues would sit and they would translate the Hebrew text word by word. Rather than we do, we have a whole sentence and then we translate the sentence. They would do it word by word, which created this very, very awkward sort of mix between Yiddish and Hebrew that was sort of used in the synagogue. And that led to the emergence of real code switching between the two languages. That's why very often... Jewish languages have this extreme 
amount of Hebrew vocabulary being used because it's facilitated by this very, very bizarre translation techniques that, you know, the young men would employ in the synagogues. What is code switching, Miriam? So code switching is when people use two different kinds of languages in the same sentence. It's an example you often use, uh, Ed, when you say, oh, I had all these Torahs, right? Torahs is Torah. It's a Hebrew word originally that is then used by Jewish speakers in English. You basically code switch between two languages. And then at some point, uh, you know, when enough people understand it, it becomes a loan word and everyone understands it. Yes, if I could perhaps uh, come in on the point that uh, Miriam made earlier, that kind of very close uh, translation of the Hebrew, uh, it still goes on to this day, doesn't it? I mean, there are new translations of Old Testament books which are still coming out, which are extremely close and which are aiming deliberately to produce a kind of mashup of perhaps, uh, I mean, the, the example I'm thinking of is the Shokan Bible and uh, that kind of mashup of, of English with Hebrew syntax. It's an amazing language. And uh, one can certainly see why the translator would have that aim, even if it's a tough read. Duncan, you mentioned how some translations become almost revered. And the one that came straight to my mind was the King James Bible. It's almost become holy in its own right. Is that what you were thinking about? Or are there other examples as well? I think that's the preeminent example in English, yes. And we're not far away, are we, from the celebration of the uh, 400th anniversary of the first publication of the King James. So there's been a lot of interest in that particular translation in recent years, certainly in the last decade. It's funny, I once wrote to Desert Island Discs asking which Bible translation they are offering the castaways because they always say, oh, you can have the Bible and Shakespeare. And Shakespeare, one assumes, you know, uh, collected works, but the Bible, I didn't get a very satisfactory answer, I must say, to my to my question, but I've always assumed it's the King James Version. I don't think I've, I've heard quite a lot of episodes of that programme. I don't think anyone has ever specified a particular translation. But when we say in English, oh, that sounds biblical or something, that's what we mean, isn't it? Usually. I think it's still the case that people think of that as the go-to Bible translation, certainly as far as, coming back to your question, as far as its influence on uh, later literature is concerned. I mean, it's had, you know, there's there's no other Bible translation in English that has had anything like the uh, impact, not least, of course, because the, uh, the King James has been going for 400 years and it's contemporary with Shakespeare. And not coincidental that it's uh, uh, contemporary with uh, Shakespeare, because I think there's an interesting argument about how it reflects the development of uh, the English language at that stage in the same way that Shakespeare does. And this this huge flourishing of English uh, language and literature in that early 17th century period. I have to share with you both one of my favourite exam questions in this area, which is that all translation is interpretation. Now, we have two experts in front of me. So I can't resist but asking you whether you think the answer is yes, no, or maybe. Miriam? Yes. I think the most extreme example, perhaps, that I know about doesn't really come from the area I work in, but German philosophers. So Immanuel Kant, I know that experts on Kant, they don't want to read him in German because he's so difficult to grasp. So even Germans will prefer to read him in English because at least there has always been sort of one interpretation sort of shoehorned on this multitude of meanings that he brings forward. So I think I would definitely answer yes. I'm certainly not going to disagree. It's a resounding yes from me as well. 
I would perhaps uh, come at this issue uh, from a slightly different angle. I think it's so important to think of translators as first and foremost readers. If you start from that point, then, of course, it's self-evident that any translation which is produced on the basis of a translator's reading of a text is going to be an interpretation because every reading is an interpretation. So when you think about it, I think it seems a no-brainer in a way, but there's, there's such a lot being invested in precisely in that question. And I think there are clearly those who, who want to resist the answer, yes. Um, but what is at stake if you do that? There's been a long tradition of arguments around untranslatability, for example, and they very often hinge on this question. Oh, well, all translations are interpretations. Therefore, in some sense, no translation captures the essence of the original but a short step to kind of fetishizing the original and reaching the conclusion that no translation is ever going to be perfect. So what do you do? Do you stop translating? And what do you mean by perfect anyway? And it's that notion of a perfect translation that's out there, that kind of platonic translation, which nobody can get to, so everything is lost in translation. I don't think that really helps us uh, to evaluate really what is going on in translation. You have to recognize that a translated book is a different book. It's written by the translator. It's not uh, Tolstoy. It's it's written by Constance Garnett or whatever. There are just the original or the source text and uh, the translation are two different things. And I think the interpretative side to translation is to be celebrated, uh, quite simply. I think so often, particularly those who don't really have so much to do with translation, perhaps think of something getting lost in translation. What about what gets gained? The lost in translation idea has become a kind of a way of approaching translation, thinking about what can't be translated, what gets lost. But so often translations are hugely inventive and they're wonderful examples of how writers can overcome constraints, because that's what translation is. It's a, it's a form of constrained writing. And, you know, the human ingenuity that goes into translating in the light of those uh, constraints is really mind boggling. So, Miriam, are you a lost in translation person or are you a gained in translation person? I'm definitely a gained in translation person. Give us an example, Miriam, from your own work. I'm thinking of some of the pre-modern letters you touched on earlier. Quite different texts than works of literature that uh, Duncan's been referring to. Are there particular challenges there in understanding what the author meant? That touches upon this, this sort of core issue of translation. How close do you keep to the original? Or how how far can you remove yourself just keeping the sense? But that's something I always really struggle with because I translate a lot of original documents. And I, I'm one of those people, I like to keep as close as possible to the original structure. It enables the reader in the new language to capture a little bit of the essence of the original. And I always get uh, smacked down for this. Whenever I want to publish an edition of something, people say, oh, no, no, this is much too literal. Make it flow better, make it into better English. And I, I always try to resist. This is Naked Reflections, and my guests this week are Miriam Wagner and Duncan Large. We're discussing the complexities of translation, but I can confirm that no interpreters have been involved in the making of this podcast. When it comes to science, translation is not just a question of language. A layperson could not make head or tail of the data that comes from a radio telescope, for example. We need experts to interpret it. The breakthrough in the discovery of the double helix came because of a similar act of interpretation, as Megan McGregor explained in The Naked Scientist show, Rosalind Franklin, The Hidden Story of DNA. 
Rosalind Franklin used X-ray crystallography to create Photo 51, a black and white picture showing an X shape made up of spaced apart black splotches. And it was thanks to this photograph that the structure of DNA as a helix was figured out. This was a picture of crystallized DNA. Duncan, do you work on the translation of science texts in your centre? We don't. We are a centre for literary translation. But that said, we do interpret the notion of literature quite broadly. Certainly in my own work on uh, the translation of philosophical texts, I'm interested in non-fiction examples. So not just kind of literary translation in its narrow, belletristic sense. And thinking beyond that, uh, with a broader conception of literature, then that includes philosophy, as I mentioned, history and other kinds of uh, essayistic writing. I'm working on a, a paper at the moment, for example, for a conference in the autumn, which looks at the translation of Vienna circle philosophy, so logical positivism. It's kind of a challenge for me because usually I'm working with uh, continental philosophers, particularly Nietzsche. And so translating a philosopher like Nietzsche is you know, not very far from translating a novel or uh, a set of dialogues. And he uses those forms. He writes poetry and so on. I'm interested personally in exploring a different kind of philosophy, which is precisely more scientific, uh, because I think the, the assumption is that if you're translating a book of logic, then there's not very much leeway for a translator, and there shouldn't be. The examples that I've been giving so far are high literary examples, shall we say, where what is at stake is not so obviously a notion of, of a true original, an original which encapsulates some kind of truth which must be preserved in the translation. Of course, novels incorporate truths as well, but they're of a different kind. So I'm interested in looking at a very technical kind of philosophy and translations of it to see basically what kind of uh, variations have been produced in you know, English translations of uh, German philosophy of this kind. What's interesting me, at least in these initial stages, is how much English language philosophers have been dealing with Vienna Circle philosophy in the original German. And in a way, you know, that's, if you like, the other side of the coin to the argument about untranslatability. You know, if there is a, a precious truth there, which you don't want to go astray in the translation process, then perhaps you do just need to read the original language. Um, that's something one of the texts I teach on my module in the history of theory of translation from Schopenhauer in the mid 19th century. That's basically his view about uh, philosophy translation. You're much better off reading the original language and learning the original language in order to be able to you know, decipher the philosophy. You could take the, the approach of somebody like, uh, like Heidegger, for example, who again takes a very philological view of ancient Greek philosophy there and argues that in a sense the philosophy is already in the language. So uh, how can you possibly do justice to the philosophy in translation? He has a different argument, which is that kind of German manages to achieve something similar, so that's okay then. I mean, these are questions leading us in, into uh, different areas, and particularly uh, scriptural areas. So picking up on that, Miriam, as a German speaker, I mean, how well do you think English translators cope with some of your favourite German authors? I think I have to go straight into German humour here. The oxymoron of German humour. Germans have a different sense of humour, pronounced it different from the English, but I think it's also very, very difficult to translate so one of my favorite authors in German is Daniel Kielmann, who wrote a book called Measuring the World. And in 
German. That book had me doubled over. It's absolutely hilarious. It's this very laconic way of writing something. And the humor isn't really accessible through sort of the language sentence. It's just the way he expresses things. And uh, I wanted to share that book with English friends. And I went to the bookshop and and, and the border, I picked up a copy and looked in it. I couldn't detect the humor at all. It was just not there. And it was so heartbreaking to see that basically, even though they probably employed a very, very professional person, they just couldn't translate it. They just couldn't translate it into English. And it was just lost. Yes, I suppose the main problem with uh, translating humor is that the point of a joke is to make the person hearing the joke laugh. And so it's all about the, the end. So if you're translating the means to the end and the end isn't achieved, then you failed. And it's one of those uh, areas actually in uh, translation where it is more possible than in, in many others to say, well, this is a successful uh, translation or not, because you're thinking about the purpose of uh, the translation. It's a bit like advertising. I wouldn't be tempted to say, oh, well, therefore humour is untranslatable. I think, you know, in these cases, one just needs to take a more creative approach to the translation process. I think in a way, one needs, therefore, to kind of reorientate one's approach to translation and be less interested in how the uh, translation reflects the original text and think more about um, the effect that it's going to have on your audience hearing your joke in translation or whatever. Perhaps a joke in translation is going to be a kind of parallel joke, if you like, where if you translated it back into the original language, you wouldn't get anywhere close to what that original joke was. And uh, very often, I think, with certain kinds of poetry, for example, as well, you just have to depart much further from the original uh, and not be concerned about that. Is it permissible for a translator to improve an untidy style, for example, or even amend a flaw in the text, or should they simply reproduce it? I think that's a really interesting question, which goes uh, to the heart of the kind of the, the practical translation process, because... Uh, so often in the course of a translation, you're going to be making small corrections when you find uh, typos in your source text or something. But clearly your question goes to something more uh, substantial. Um, there's a, a really interesting um, treatise on uh, translation, the, the, the earliest treatise in English uh, on translation from the late 18th century by an author called Alexander Fraser Titler. And he's very uh, sanguine about this. He basically says, oh, well, even Homer nods. So if you're translating Homer, then yeah, sure, those bits that could merit improvement uh, go ahead. And he has a very uh, positive attitude to the translator and uh, holds the translator in very high regard. Many translators, of course, translating Homer would feel, you know, I'm not worthy. So there has been a really interesting discussion about this in France in the last months, because they had a new translation come out of Mein Kampf, of Hitler's Mein Kampf, My Struggle. And uh, the previous translation had basically glossed over the atrocious sort of grammatical style and nonsensical bits that are in the original Hitler prose. And the the original translator had produced something that was much, much more coherent. So now in the new translation, they actually stuck much more to the German text and produced this bastard French version of this bastard German text, which is much, much closer to the original and taking away this sort of this beautification that ha actually happened in, in previous translations. 
That's a really nice example. It also brings us back to the earlier point about uh, translators interpreting, because of course there's a danger when you encounter what you think is something that needs improving in the original text. Uh, there's a danger that you know you've just got it wrong, and there are trends in this. And um, certainly, I think uh, contemporary translators are rather rather more inclined to uh, assume that if there's something which eludes them, that they need to do some more homework and perhaps get more onto the wavelength of the original and we're less inclined to think oh well obviously this needs improvement we haven't touched on mistranslations real errors in the text and one of the most famous is of course the description of moses coming down from mount sinai when his face is lit up but translated often as moses with a horn which is a mistranslation isn't it miriam of karen and karen and you do find images of moses with a horn tell us a bit about that this is Particularly pertinent when people take a literal view of, of scripture, right? When people really go down to the words to portray a particular worldview. And creationism is a good example. So people go to the Bible and say, in the beginning, although in the Bible it actually says in a beginning. So it can be one of many, many beginnings. It can be a renewal. The Bible in its language doesn't actually say this is the very beginning of time. But of course, people have taken this phrase with a the, with this specific article, and then build a whole worldview around that the world is, is 5,700 years old. So this is a very, very good example of a mistranslation that has actually has translated into a whole sort of ideology. We're drawing to the end of this podcast. But I do want to ask each of you to nominate your favorite piece of translation and tell the listeners why. I'm going to say something whimsical. Um, my favorite translation of English into German is the dubbing of Life of Brian. So the English is hilarious, but actually the German version I find funnier. I think Life of Brian coming out in Germany has actually sort of transformed German humor to a degree. It's, it's absolutely hilarious in German. And uh, I think it lifted German humor to a different level. So I'm very, very grateful for the people who produced this original translation. They were absolutely geniuses. Well, give us an example, Miriam, because many of us would have seen Life of Brian in English, but not necessarily in German. That's actually quite difficult because I don't think I can translate the German into a sort of back into funny English. I was thinking of a translation from French into English, and that's the translation of Georges Perec's novel La Disparition uh, into English by Gilbert Adair uh, as Void. The point of the novel is that it doesn't use the letter E. It's that one. People have perhaps heard of the original uh, novel by Perec, who was one of the Ulipo group. So I mentioned uh, translation as a kind of writing under constraints before. And of course, the Ulipo is the example par excellence of uh, a group of writers who wanted to set themselves challenges like that. So Perec does that. He writes a quite substantial novel, a very funny novel, a very successful novel, without using the, the commonest letter in French, which is E. What Adair does is he does a translation which produces a very long, very funny novel in English without using the letter E. It's an extraordinary feat. And so I think it's interesting that both Miriam and I choose examples of very creative translation and very humorous uh, translation because there's something very endearing, I think, about both of these examples. And they're, they're examples of kind of translation at its finest, uh, certainly for me. I mean, that, that's the kind of translation that I enjoy reading most, where in a sense, you have to read both books. 
heard a paper once at a conference、uh, in Shanghai by the Chinese translator who had just brought out the first Chinese translation of Joyce's Finnegans Wake, and that's another example, isn't it, of the kind of text which is just so challenging in itself. Never mind, you know, translating it、uh, to interpret it, to read it in the original English or whatever you want to call Joyce's language. That once you're translating it into another language, you've just got to effectively rewrite the book and.、Uh, It's a, a fascinating process in Chinese,、uh, that's for sure. We must end it there. So, au revoir, au wiedersehen, arrivederci, salam, shalom. Thanks to my guests, Miriam Wagner and Duncan Large, and thanks to you too, dear listener, for listening. You know where to find us, and we'd like to hear from you. Our back catalogue of discussions, more than eighty to date, needs no translation. And have a listen to our other podcasts, such as the A to Z of the Holy Land. As well as the wonderful podcasts at Naked Scientists, I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing twenty billion pounds in R and D over the next two years, the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities, the nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.